0: So Luke chapter 5, verse 27, Um, just by way of review, Jesus had just been inside a home where a man was brought in by his friends, he was paralyzed, Um, he was actually lowered from the roof because there wasn't room for them to get in there And, and upon seeing the faith of these these men who brought in their friend, Jesus said to the man who was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. And immediately upon saying your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees who had come from all over the, over the, over the place, um, basically said to Jesus in, in their hearts, and Jesus discerned this, who is this fellow who thinks he can forgive sins for only God alone can forgive sins, which is true. And Jesus said, all right, well, now that I'm reading your hearts, I just want you to know which is easier for me to do. Is it easier to say uh, your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say get up and walk? And and the way I I picture that is that it's a lot harder uh, to say get up and walk because you actually have to see something happen. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's within the Spirit. You can't see it. And so Jesus says, because I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority over sin. I'm going to do something physical so that you know that I have authority over something spiritual. And so he says, I tell you, get up, you know, take up your mat, and go home. And the guy went, praising God, amen? And the point being that Jesus has the authority and the power to heal the man from something which was plaguing him, but truly, the true issue in his life was sin, and that was, that was his issue. Jesus had the authority and the power to forgive this man's sin. And I already spoke last week, not all physical things are a result of sin. Um, it is because we live in a sinful world, but, uh, you know, personal sin. And I don't want to get into that right now. But in, no matter um, what sin paralyzes you and grips you, whatever sin that is, Jesus has the authority to absolutely forgive and to cleanse you this morning. Amen? I love that about our Lord. And so um, verse 27 says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. And so Jesus gets out of the house. He moves on his way, most likely to the Sea of Galilee. The Book of Matthew tells us, and I believe that this guy Levi is the same guy from the Book of Matthew who is called Matthew in the in the Book of Matthew. Jesus often changes people's names. He can do that. Um, but that was his street name, I guess. Levi, you know, who knows? But. This is the the event that would change Levi's life forever for he would eventually become apostle and a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe. And Levi, unfortunately at this time, was a tax collector. Any of you ever done anything that wasn't really approved by other people? Um, socially or whatever it might be. Anybody in, ever been in a shady profession? I mean, it had been in sales like where you're just like, this is not, I'm not saying sales is a bad, I'm just... <laughs> saying so everybody in sales and go, man, this is not how I'd like to be selling things, and there's this pressure. It's just kind of shady business and everybody kind of looks at. It. I'm speaking from experience. Um, but tax collectors were absolutely hated in the day because they were Jews working either directly or indirectly for the Roman government. They're occupiers. And so here they are, they're viewed as traitors on the one hand, and on the other hand, we find out, like in stories in Luke 13, when John the Baptist is is preaching hellfire and brimstone, basically, and these group of tax collectors come up to him and say, what do we need to do to repent and to avoid judgment? He says, don't collect any more than you should, which tells us. They were collecting more than they should, right? And so they were viewed as people who were greedy. Not only were they traders, but they were taking advantage of people, and not all of them, but a majority of them, enough to where it was, it was, uh, it was very well known. And so um, tax collectors were really taboo. They were avoided at all costs by the general population, and and even were excommunicated from worship. Um, But Jesus, he reaches into Levi's life. He walks up to his booth and he says what? He says, follow me. Aren't you thankful that Jesus walks up to our tax booth and says, follow me? At one point in our life, whenever whatever we were doing was messed up and Jesus came to us and said, follow me. I love that about the Lord. And at that moment, Levi, he had a choice. He had a choice. He could have said, no, thank you, and stayed in his tax booth for the rest of his life. But he decided to respond to Jesus' call. And it says, Levi got up, he left everything, and he followed him. He got up, he left everything, and he followed Jesus. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That we get up, we leave everything, and we follow Jesus. A few weeks ago, when, when John was uh, John Regicalchi was teaching in Luke 5 about the calling of Peter, James, and John, they were confronted by Jesus' grace. And in verse 11 of, of chapter 5 here, it says, And so they pulled their boats up on the shore, and they left everything and followed him. They pulled their boats up on the shore. They left their nets. They left everything, and they followed Jesus. And in Luke later on, we'll get to it. Um, we'll get to it next year probably, Luke nine twenty three. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must, what, deny themselves and take up their cross and daily and follow me. You know This is re- God's requirement for you and for me to be a follower of Jesus, to deny ourselves, to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, me to pick up my cross, and to follow Jesus daily. And by the way, Jesus was leading them to the cross. He would eventually die. All the apostles would eventually be martyred except for John, who some say was boiled alive and survived. So serious business. You know, some of this, (laughs) this is not the best transition, but some of this uh, this morning are missing God's plan for our life. (laughs) To be bold alive, no, that's not it. Because we're missing out on God's best for us because we refuse to get up and to leave everything and to follow Jesus. I think it's totally my nature to just want to stay put in my kingdom and the things I'm doing and all that type of stuff i 'm totally comfortable it's just staying in one place. Some of you are you know all over the place, but even that can be your tax booth, but it 's not too late it 's not too late if you 've got breath in your in your body, God is calling you this morning to get up and leave everything and follow Jesus. This does not mean. As some of you are thinking right now, I know you are, I get to leave my wife and my husband, Woo, I'll follow Jesus. <laughs> that's not what he's saying. Abandon your kids, all that weird stuff. That's not what he's saying. But it is saying that follow Jesus is now your number one pursuit. You know, Jesus just comes to our hearts and he comes into our lives and he says, follow me. This is a And and instantly when, when you get this challenge from Jesus to follow him, in other words, he comes to you and says, follow me. I don't know about you, but i got 50 things and reasons why I don't want to follow him. Anyone else? But Lord, I first have to, but I want to, but I can't because... Anyone else have those things going on? Yeah, me too. But the idea is that Jesus is now number one. Your identity is no longer solely in what you do, or even in your family, or in all these other things. It is in Jesus Christ. You are now in Christ Jesus. He is who you identify with, and everything you do and are and be is about His will. What do you want? And by the way, some of you have placed you exactly where you're supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a, a mother for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I'm supposed to be a father for Jesus Christ. I'm supposed to be a husband. I'm supposed to be, um, you know, a phlebotomist. I'm supposed to be someone who is teaching kids in school or or collecting taxes or whatever it might be. The Lord has has placed you in those places by the will of Jesus Christ, Amen. And so, don't think that leaving all means okay, Matt. Now get out of the pulpit because that's not what's going on here. Uh, <laughs> it might be. I hope it is actually. But he's calling you out from what you have been to who he is. And your identity, your identity is now in Jesus Christ, as Jesus will say in a few chapters in Luke. In Luke nine, it says, "For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will what? Will save it? Will find it? And so." For whoever wants to lose uh, to save their life will lose it. How many of you are willing to lose your life, lose your job, lose your identity, lose all those things for the sake of following Jesus? What if he called you to go on a mission field and to leave everything, even though you've got a lucrative job and good things and things are taken care of, and say, I want you to go to Saudi Arabia. Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to follow Jesus, his call on your life? How many of you are willing to, even even more fearsome and more real, get up and go across the street and witness to someone? <laughs> Where's Jesus leading you this week? Amen? To ask for forgiveness, tons of things the Lord would have us do. So what's your tax booth? What's your tax booth? Perhaps it's a hobby that obsesses your life. And in your mind, you've gone, I'm justifying this, so I'll use this for Christ, and you never do. It's just, you just continue to let it dominate you. What's your fishing boat? What's What are your nets? You know, I remember for me it was music when I was younger. I remember that's what I did all through my teenage years. I'd play guitar for eight hours a day. I didn't really study school, but I played guitar. And I was I was good at the time. I've regressed a lot. It's I know. It was awesome back then. Uh, but I'd write songs and do all this stuff, and, and it was just, you know, it was a big thing in my life. And it came to the place where the Lord had gotten a hold of my heart, brought me into the church, and, and there just became a great dissatisfaction for what I had. I wanted to use this. I wanted to have what I wanted, uh, what I, my kingdom, my thing. And eventually I said, God, I'm not playing guitar anymore until you tell me to pick it up. Now this is my own personal story about my own tax booth, okay? And so I said, it's yours. And I'm going, this is a real big thing for me because I really like guitar. I really like music. But I said, I'm not doing it anymore. It's yours. I surrender it to you. And it was when I surrendered it that, someone on the worship team had a heart attack and someone came up to me and said, hey, I'm not saying, God knows all these things, right? <clears throat> someone came up and said, hey, would you, would you play guitar? And, and instantly in my mind I go, wait a second, I just set this down. I prayed, Lord, will you take it? And then he took the very thing that he created me to enjoy and to do and put it in his proper context. Isn't that wonderful to know? Hey, Pete, guess what? I'm going to make you a fisher of men now. Isn't that cool how God does that in our hearts and our lives? But if I had held on to that, I would have never experienced the joy of being able to play music all around the world and go places and do things and meet people and, and all that stuff and be here. I mean, it's so far more than anything I could have ever imagined. But I had to invite Jesus into that area of my life. I had to deny myself and follow him. And as soon as I did, I actually found that I actually had life. I found it. And so Levi decided to follow Jesus. No looking back, no looking back, amen? Uh, Verse 29 says, Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. I love this. When Jesus comes into your life, into my life, he desires to affect every part of you, inside, outside, personal, and public. If we have this idea that that my relationship, my following Jesus is, is, is solely a personal thing, we're fooled. Jesus wants to be very public in your life. Very public in your life. Just as personal as public. And that's the idea, is that it starts from within and overflows into the out. Amen? And if it's not happening in the out, I wonder what's happening in the in. Right? That's how I judge myself sometimes. But um, following Jesus is not only personal, but it is very public. And it says, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus. And so the crowds were large. And notice what kind of people were gathered. A large crowd of what? Tax collectors and Others, whatever those others are. Are we on the right verse there? Yeah. Uh, uh, Tax collectors and others, and, and obviously these others are sinners. But these were people in Levi's social circle. These were Levi's friends. These were Levi's colleagues whom Jesus started to influence and be around through Levi's life. And so the moment that Levi began to follow Jesus... He welcomed Jesus into every part of his life, and Jesus is now in Levi's house. Jesus is hanging out with Levi's colleagues. Jesus is, is permeating Levi's life. And that's what it is to follow Jesus. You find that Jesus follows you in your house, <laughs> it follows you into work, it follows you wherever it is. Amen. Verse 30. We have a little opposition here. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were now following Jesus around and criticizing him all the time. This is going to increasingly happen as we read scriptures. This is something that's going to be more and more of a point. The opposition. And they will eventually uh, crucify Jesus. But we can see that they wanted uh, they, w- w- they wanted to circumvent Jesus, and they went around Jesus to his disciples. You ever found that about people who like to criticize people? They usually don't like to do it to people's face, but they find some back doorway of doing it. Anybody? Yeah, it's kind of discouraging, uh, but I found that true. Um, their complaint was to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And eating and drinking was really important to the Jews. I think it is is this to us. You know, when we have we have meals with each other, we're kind of bonding, right? And the same idea was back then. You had a big old bowl of soup in the middle and you had a big you know, loaf of bread, flat flat bread, whatever you call it, and there might be some other food on the table, whatever. They'd all hang around this, they'd break it apart and they'd each dip, hopefully no double dipping, right? But they just and the idea was that the same f- bread that is is in me is in you. And the same food that is in you is in me. Um, and, And we're kind of, we're one. We're communing, so to speak. And so why in the world are you eating and drinking with those people? Got it? What are you doing hanging out with them? You're becoming one with them. You're connecting with them. And that's kind of how it was viewed in the Jewish mindset. If you're this rabbi, what are you doing doing these things, Jesus? And verse 31. Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Some of you who are healthy, you hardly ever go to the doctor. How many of you hardly ever go to the doctor? They're stubborn people. I know you are stubborn. I'm I'm just kidding. I'm not going to the doctor. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, But those of us who have been sick, we need a doctor. Verse 32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? To repentance and notice that Jesus responded directly to them. He heard their complaint indirectly and came to them directly. That's that's godly communication, by the way. You ever had a complaint roundabout? Go find that person, talk to them face to face. You know, quite often people come up to me and, and say, You know, I got a problem with so and so. Like, well, have you talked to them? No, that's why I'm coming to you. I'm like, the Bible says you go talk to them. And then if they don't listen to you, go bring another person. And the interesting thing is, it's not supposed to be a person who's just on your side, but who witnessed the same thing, right? And hopefully that person's objective. How many of you had a situation where you thought something was going a certain way, and then you got someone else involved to try to get on your bandwagon, and you found, they said, you're crazy. Oh, yeah, I guess I am kind of works itself out, right? And it's supposed to escalate to eventually where you get enough groups of people who really see this person's having trouble. Then you bring it to the elders if they still have not repented. And then you excommunicate them from the church. We don't want to get there, amen? I don't know why I went off on that, but that was fun. <laughs> but Jesus did respond directly to them. And the Pharisees viewed the tax collectors and the others as sinners to be avoided, but Jesus viewed them as the sick in need of healing. How do you view the lost? Do you view them as sinners to be avoided? Think of you know sins that you don't like. And do you view them as, as people to be avoided or sick needing healing? And I think that's a real big question. Now, I'm not one of those pastors that tries to mince words. Sin is sin. God hates sin. And by the way, God hates the sinner. The the soul that sins, God hates. What's the soul? So at the same time, God says God loves the world. How can he hate and love at the same time? That's what makes him God. I'm very happy about that. But I'm not God, and I don't have that ability to do that. God calls me to love. Amen? God calls me to seek and reach out to the lost. And while on one hand, we'll get into it, I'm to be totally appalled by sin. Being a sinner myself, I realize how easy I'm ensnared into it. And so it's the spirit of humility that we reach out to brothers and sisters in sin and the world, obviously. And hopefully that's the spirit. And We see that spirit, um, the same spirit as Jesus Christ working in and through Levi's life, but Jesus was sent to sinners. They are sick with sin, and I'm calling them to repentance is what Jesus is saying, and Jesus was sent to sinners, sinners like you, like me, amen, tax collectors or whatever you want to put on our, our docket there, Jesus came and sought us out through someone, amen, How many of you had someone lead you to Jesus, someone point out the gospel, someone praying for you, someone who loved you in spite of you? Anyone else? Okay, just like five of us, that's okay. But he came to us, he called us, and he came into our homes and our lives, and he took over and he started shining in and through us to our families and people around us. And Isn't that the way that Jesus desires to work from the inside out? Praise the Lord but he desires to reach the sick and the lost through those who have been healed by him, amen, saved by him. So we can have great compassion. We can understand what it's like to fail and to need grace and to know the great forgiveness and love of the Lord. And so Jesus desires to bring sinners to repentance and his method of doing that today is through the church. It's through you through me, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, I think there's two dangers that we can face as Christians in how we view the lost and how we reach them. I think it's really important. When I read these verses, I kind of, I see a tendency in my heart to go one or two ways. I identify with the Pharisees, or I kind of over-identify or misinterpret what, what is happening with Jesus. And that's kind of, and that's kind of, I just want to clarify these things for a second. But the first danger is that we become like the Pharisees in our walks with Jesus Christ. You know, where we only associate with the healthy, we become very comfortable around our brothers and sisters in the Lord to the point where there is no outward focus, no evangelism, no connection with the lost. Just hello, how you doing? Here's a dollar, whatever it might be. You know what I mean? No connection. No connection. You know, sweet fellowship is really vital. It is essential. Actually, it's commanded in the scriptures, so we can love one another. Amen? How are you supposed to love one another and forgive one another if you're not around the one another's? You're the one another's, right? And so Jesus commands us to be in fellowship, but it's not. that's not the whole part of our relationship with the Lord. That's, that, those relationships are supposed to edify and encourage, and, and our love is supposed to be so deep one another so that it flows out into the lost. When people see that dynamic, what's happening in our relationships with one another, they go, but that's different. They love one another. They forgive one another. They're long-suffering one another. They're actually reflecting God. Isn't that amazing? How God is with us. So we're supposed to be that little picture of heaven on earth. But it's not all that Christ has called to us. Now I have to say that when I first came to the Lord, I was separated from the world, and I think for a very good reason. I had to abandon old friends. I had to abandon old people and situations and music and habits. There was just a time when I just needed to be kind of pharisaical. I needed to be separate from the world, and God was teaching me the difference of being in it and of it. And if you're in that place, that's a good place to be. Amen. If God is teaching you those things. But that shouldn't happen out con- outside of the context of the body. Because they're going to kind of, hopefully will come along with another, one another and say, yeah, okay, you've been all by yourself here, and I'm, I'm glad God's cleansing you, but now I want you to walk alongside me and let's go back out into the world. You've got to shine. And there's a real danger of just staying in that place and become a Christian who will not purposefully reach out to the lost. And if that's you, um, the Lord has saved you so that through you he might reach others. Obey him in this. It's not a matter of an option. He, he, he commands us to go. Amen? And so take check. You're, it's not about feelings. It's about what he says, right? And so we need to purposefully start asking him, Lord, if that if that's what your will is, then show me how to do it and give me an opportunity, and, and start leading me. Partner up with other people in the church and start being outward-focused in things. So there's that danger of being isolated from the lost where all our endeavors are among a close-knit group of friends or believers, and the truth is that that close-knit group should be praying for and seeking the lost together, amen? That's part of, wh- of who we are. Now, the other danger I think, I think we face is that we can misinterpret this verse to mean that hanging out uh, with sinners, so to speak, means that we are free to engage in their sinning in an attempt to reach them. I see that happening in the church a lot too. Um, Using the flesh to reach fleshly people for Jesus is not what Jesus is doing. Amen? Um, There's a definite distinction that Jesus has. He is holy. He is set apart from the world. Absolutely 100%. He is not discussing how he can join them in collecting taxes. That's not what's going on. How many of us think that way? i got to go be a part of what they're doing and making sure that I join their club and do this to go reach them to pull them out of it. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing. He's not having beers with the boys, you know, as a way of reaching them. He is eating and drinking with them, amen? He is uh, at a banquet in his honor. So Jesus is polite, he's social, he's personal. He's not, you know, mean-spirited or anything like that. He's, He's culturally savvy. He's spending time with them. He's talking to them, he's conversing with them, but without a doubt in all those conversations, guess what he's doing? He's bringing the word to them. In word and deed. The conversations are being redirected around the scriptures and all that stuff. And if they don't like him, tough. They leave. How many of us have friends where we've never gotten to share the gospel with them and they drop dead? And we decided we would just have this long-term evangelism thing. We don't know the day and the hour. And we need to be salt and light always. Now, I think there's great wisdom in how we go about that. We don't need to beat people over the head. Jesus obviously was full of love and compassion and and truth and all these things. He was meeting a need in their lives, but Jesus was not compromising in how he was living to reach them, amen? It was actually his holiness and his love that they were seeing. He's different. He's not like all the other pastors. He's not like all the other teachers who are just giving me a list of rules to stop doing this. There's relationship involved. There's other things going on. I hope we all aspire to that. But he is eating, and he is drinking with them. He's at a banquet, and he's spending time with them. But really... Without a doubt, he is proclaiming the word of God to them at dinner, through conversations, listening and responding. That is his focus. That was his identity. Telling you what, no matter what job I have, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And wherever I am, whatever position I'm in, I shine him. And I don't go by the policies of the business. I go by the policies of the king. And if it rubs them wrong, it rubs them wrong. I've got higher orders. Now, it's it's up to, it's possible with me. I want to be at peace with all men. So I need to have great discernment about how I go about stuff, right? You want to let love be the motive. You want to reflect God properly and all that. So don't feel like it's beaten down the door. But I have a feeling there's a timidity sometimes within us. But Jesus, his focus is bringing them to repentance. And as Jesus is hanging around them and he is sharing the truth and living the truth, their hearts and their minds are being challenged by God. And that's what salt and light is. You are salt and you are light. How's that salt working in the relationships around you? How's that light shining in the people around you, in your job, in your homes? I want more salt and more light, amen? Do I want more persecution? No, but that kind of seems like a mixed package, though. It all kind of comes in together, doesn't it? You start being salt in your light, and you're irritating, you're shining in the darkness, and guess what's happening? I don't want to hear about this. You're going to get Pharisees popping up. And you're going to get people who reject you and tell you to get out of town. But that's why I'm following Jesus and not them. That's why you're following Jesus. And so our witness is in holiness and love to God. You see, Jesus is influencing. He is not being influenced. Amen? He is influencing. He's not being influenced. And there's a danger that under the banner of reaching the lost, we get pulled back into sin that Jesus died to set us free from. Or we we treat it like it's no big deal. It's a big deal. Amen? So, our witness is that we are in the world but not of it. We're with them but we're not of them. Amen? We're with them but we're not of them. We love them by declaring the truth of the gospel to them and that's what Christ did. And so should we. And so the opportunity we have is to invite Christ into every aspect of our lives and to use every part of it as a possible opportunity for people to be introduced to Jesus. And so I just I just really quickly we want to reach lost, we don't want to be far away from them. We don't want to isolate. We also don't want to be so you know loose about things that we are you know we're like oh yeah blah 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 and then where's your witness? Where's the change? Where's the life? Where's the holiness? Where's the power, right? You want to follow the Spirit, be in step with the Spirit, which means we got to be praying, we've got to be in the Word, and we've got to go with the convictions the Lord gives us, amen? And as we're in those circumstances, He'll give us wisdom. I'm not going to give you a set of rules. Don't do this, do that. You need to be Spirit-led people, amen? That's what we are. Now, verse 33 is a continuation of the Pharisees' criticisms of Jesus as we bust to the end here. It says, they said to Him, John's disciples often fast and pray. you ever talked to someone and go like, you you give them a good reason for something, and they go, yeah, but. This is a yeah, but. And they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. And so the complaint is, why aren't your disciples Uh, doing what real disciples do. And they use John, John the Baptist, one of Jesus' allies, as an example, and the Pharisees, us. You know? It's like, hey, look at us. You're the oddball. What's going on there? Why aren't you, why aren't you guys up to the standard? And Jesus answers in verse 34 by basically saying that the disciples, that having the disciples fast while Jesus is with them would be like having the friends of a bridegroom not celebrate at a wedding. It's like, oh. You know, they're just like sitting there morbid. And, and basically, they're saying, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you miserable like us? Why do you have so much joy? Why are you walking around smiling and having fun? And what's with all this? And your disciples should be miserable like us. <laughs> now, wedding is a really big event in our culture. Amen. I mean it's a it's a pinnacle, it's a beautiful thing. But in, in Middle Eastern back then, Jewish weddings, it went on for seven days, as it does in some cultures today. Like a week long wedding. Can you imagine how well stressful that is, but I mean how <laughs> how fun that would be. Just everybody takes a week off and you go and you just celebrate for a week or eating, drinking, hanging around, talking and celebrating, and it's all this anticipatory until the you know the, the bridegroom comes and snatches the bride away, and then everybody's all, yeah which is a picture of what we're waiting for seven years, interesting, all that stuff you can get into that later but it was that week long celebration and Jesus is likening himself to that bridegroom here and his disciples are the friends and so Jesus is saying why on earth would they be fasting when I'm with them I'm the reason people fast to be with me to long for me, to hunger and thirst for me, for my presence. Amen. But there will be a time when I'm taken away, and then they will fast. And that time is now. That time is now for us. The Lord is not with us, He is our bridegroom in heaven, and we are His bride on earth. Like Abraham having I get Isaac Isaac get his bride from a faraway land. There was a time between the time that she said yes and was given gifts and proceeded on this long journey until she was reunited with him. And we're on that long journey right now. And while he has not left us as orphans, he has given us his Holy Spirit, his Eleazar, who is taking us, along the journey with him until we're reunited. We are in a place of great need. We're again a place of the flesh, in a world of the flesh. That's contrary to the kingdom of God. And fasting is a very important thing. Prayer and fasting is 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 definitely what a disciple does. I could do a lot more of it, obviously. But fasting is not eating food. It's denying basic needs in order to concentrate more fully upon the Lord. We're created in God's image. And we were created with a spirit and a body and a soul. And without the Holy Spirit, without being regenerated, we're controlled by the flesh. Well, God's given us our spirit. And sometimes we need to say, hey, body, get in check and we deny ourselves basic things, that the Spirit might rise up, that we might hear the things of the Lord. So it's a time of humbling ourselves, that the Spirit might arise, and the flesh would be suppressed, and while the Lord was with them, there was no need to fast. He's right there speaking to them. Amen? No need. Just as when we die, or when Jesus comes to get us, we're going to be in His presence, and fasting is going to cease. There's going to be a celebration. Amen? Amen? But for us, now is the time of fasting and prayer. Our bridegroom is in heaven, and we are the bride. And here, we're waiting for him to come and get us, just like the wedding ceremony of the day. And so now is the time for us to seek the Lord in prayer and fasting, to humble ourselves and to seek him. You know, uh, one of the most fascinating um, scriptures is Isaiah 58. And I don't have time to, to get into that. But if you get into it, he says, is this not the... The fast that I've called a time of bending yourself down like a reed in the wind, of being in, in sackcloth and ashes and all this type of stuff. And he says, You're like a people that that acts like they really want to see me, but guess what? There's injustice going on. There's unforgiveness. The way you're treating one another is going you know, and so what happens is is the Holy Spirit says, That's isn't that the fast I really want? Isn't the fast that I really desire? You come to me and do all these religious acts, but what I want you is to be right with one another and to live out your faith with one another. Then come to me. And so I do believe that as we deny ourselves, as we come to the Lord, as we fast, He's going to show us these inner workings within our relationships with one another. He's going to show us what's, what's, what's squirrely, that we wouldn't be able to discern on our own, but as we are denying the flesh, which we are trapped in right now, we are beginning to seek and hear from the Lord, and he gives us insights into the inner workings of our hearts as we're in Scripture and as we're in prayer for that focused time. And through that, as we focus on the Lord, he gives us uh, insight and freedom and wisdom to move forward. And so we see there the heart of fasting. I I would do that for homework, Isaiah 58. You'll get extra credit. You know, to seek the Lord, to humility, to repent and to be empowered to follow him. And the Lord was with his disciples. There was no need to fast. But the Pharisees were constantly focused on the outside. Why aren't you eating? Why are you eating and drinking? Why aren't you doing this? Why are you doing this? And they just kept pecking at all the external things. And Jesus was doing something that didn't fit their view of God. He was doing something totally new, something totally different. And this would drive them to kill Jesus. Verse 36, let's finish. And he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment. And the patch from the the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskin will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. (laughs) So Jesus just kind of gives this great uh, couple pictures here, and what Jesus is alluding to is that what Jesus is doing is not going to work with them. It's not going to fit. It's not going to happen. Jesus is doing a new work, and to take what he is doing and try to fit it into their old system is like putting new wine into old wine skins. It's like tearing of something from a new, new cloth and ruining the new cloth and patching it on the old. It's not going to fit. It does not comply. It does not work. They are two separate things. Old wine has finished fermenting. The process of wine is that it ferments, it expands and it creates alcohol. That's the idea as the sugars are eaten and all that stuff, modern day off the yeast, but this would have been something different. But it's done expanding. New wine is full of life, so to speak. It's not done expanding. It's just begun. And you put a new <coughs> you put new wine into an old wineskin that's already been expanded, what's going to happen? It's going to burst and everything's going to ruin. Jesus is saying it's not fitting into your system. What I'm doing is not going to work with your lists of do's and don'ts. This is, a, this is the work of the Spirit. This is different. Jesus was bringing new wine, and the old wineskins couldn't handle it. And Jesus in verse 39 says, And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Right? that's the, Everybody tries to get an aged wine, right? Because the old is better because it stopped doing it's less, It's softer, all this type of stuff, whatever. But the Pharisees were tasting the new wine, and they liked the old better. They liked the old better. Anybody like that around here? I don't want to change. I don't want to do what you're doing, God, all that type of stuff. Me too, by the way. I'm, the older I get, the more I'm like, ah, I'm just. can I just throw my phone in the ocean? You know, what happened to the day of, like, be home by dinner? You know? <laughs> but these guys, they like the external better. But Jesus was all about the kingdom of God and the hearts of men, the internal. The truth is, the truth is, in the kingdom, the latter wine is better. The latter wine is better. You know, I never noticed this. I was talking to someone Earlier this week, and we were discussing discussing this, and it just popped in my head. I said, what well, is Jesus' first miracle was making water into wine?" And I remembered at the end of the story in John two nine through ten, it says this: "The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants knew where it, where uh, who had drawn uh, the water." The servants who would drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And I never noticed that before, but that is a picture of Old Covenant, New Covenant. That is a picture of Old Testament, New Testament, of law versus grace. New wine must be poured into what new wineskins. Jesus said, "You must be what born again, and when you become that new wineskin, guess what he wants to pour into you the Holy Spirit, and he wants to expand, and he wants to expand to the place where what it overflows. It's a beautiful picture of what God desires to do. In you. Jesus didn't come to patch Levi up. Jesus didn't come to get him to start hanging out with the right people. We're not here to patch people up. We're not here to get people to start hanging out with the right people and to stop doing this and to stop doing that or to eat the right food or to not eat the right food. Jesus came to make Levi new. Amen? We're here to make people what? New. That's what Jesus has called us to do. Through the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel, that through faith in Jesus Christ, that people can be made new. And when you're made new, Jesus fills you with himself, and he starts to overflow your life to the degree you let him. Amen? Amen? He wants to fill you and me with that new wine. The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, but be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is the relationship Jesus desires with us. That we would believe upon his death and resurrection so that we would be born again. And that our lives would be made new and filled with his Holy Spirit to overflowing and the lives around us would be impacted by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that is, the, that is what the church is. That is who you've been brought into. And by faith in him, you have been made new. And is he willing to fill you? Yes, he absolutely is. But you don't know, Lord, I've been a tax collector. You don't know who I just made you. You're now a son You're now a daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I'm for you. And I'm with you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, your sweet word. Just watching you, Lord Jesus, touch lepers, reach out to tax collectors, heal the paralytic just your great compassion and your love for our brokenness. Self-inflicted or not, you've come to reach and to heal. And so this morning, I pray that the work of your Holy Spirit would continue in us. Jesus, that you would come in and take over. And whatever our tax booths are, God, would you just help us to drop those things and just to give them up and follow you and, and we might feel that cross, that that burning of the flesh. Let it be so. Let us be united with you in it, as we deny ourselves. And that, that just as we identify you within death, we'd identify you with you in life. And we, this new life would flow from this church, not based upon anything but by your goodness and your grace. And so, Lord Jesus, rise up and overflow in us. We humbly ask in the name of Jesus, amen.